find your way to Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. So 1 Peter, chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. Before I read that, I'm going to begin us with a what's called a prayer of illumination in the, the history of um, Reformed liturgy, the, the order of worship and praise. There was often... A prayer of illumination, which is simply a prayer asking God to open our minds and hearts to His Word. And uh, in my own devotion this week, I came across this one from what is called the Middleburg Liturgy. That's more than you needed to know, I know. But it just really touched a chord. And so if you would pray with me, we'll begin with this prayer. Almighty God, most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before Your Majesty asking from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of Your Word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution can cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it out, but that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold as Your heavenly wisdom has appointed. And it is in Your name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, and he's speaking here specifically to believers, we know that because back in verse 7, he had contrasted us believers with those who do not believe. But you, believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is His Word. And this is the calling for the Christian as we live our lives in the midst of a dark and darkening world. You may have noticed these days that you don't quite fit in with this culture the direction that it's headed. It doesn't share your values. doesn't see life the way that you see it from a biblical point of view. doesn't see marriage the way you see it, or morality, or even what it means to be a man or a woman. As Carl Truman has said, we are living in a strange new world. But that just begs the question, how then should we live in this world in which we find ourselves. I mean, do we go to war with it? You know, and enter this struggle to try to wrest uh, the reins of culture back into our hands? Do we run from it? You know, is it time to go build a monastery on some desert island somewhere and just disappear? Do we give in to it and just go with the flow and, and become indistinguishable from the culture around us? 
How are we to engage this culture in which we find ourselves so very out of step? That's exactly the question Peter is answering here in this letter. The early church began its life in an alien environment, that of the Greco-Roman world, which was a world of deep paganism. As Peter's writing this, hostility is building up against the church. They don't fit in. Their commitment to Christ and to His Word puts them at odds with the paganism of the culture around them. Persecution is heating up. The very persecution that will eventually take Peter's life and Paul's life and some of the others. And so Peter is writing to tell them how they must live their faith in the midst of this increasing hostility. And so there's much for us to gain here, as you might imagine. The first thing that Peter tells them that they need to do, that we as believers in this context need to do, is, number one, to understand and embrace our God-given identity as God's people. Verses 9 and 10. Now, identity is a huge thing today. Uh, We live in a world of identity politics where everybody gets sorted by their various perceived identities. Uh, We live in a time of self-proclaimed identities. You know, um, I identify as this or I identify as that. What do you identify as? If I ask you to answer this question, uh, what would you say before I'm anything else? I am. You see, that's an important question. Because what you think you are will determine how you attempt to live. So how do you identify yourself? First and foremost, you get up, you look in the mirror. What do you see there? One of the most important gifts that comes with the Christian faith is the gift of a God-given identity. Of God speaking into your life and saying, this is who you are. And so we don't have to scramble around and uh, try to come up with some self-made identity or, 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 or try to figure this out for ourselves. That weight is not on our shoulders because God Himself declares to us just who we are. First, as we saw some weeks ago in creation, He makes us male and female in His image. That's His gift. But then even more importantly, in salvation, He makes us a people who belong to Him. I mean, look at verse 10 in our text. It says, once you were not a people, but now, oh, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is part of His mercy. When when God in great mercy saved you, He gave you, well, well, frankly, a series of gifts. Too many even to try to mention here. But, But not only the gift of forgiveness of sins, which we've celebrated, not only the gift of acceptance and the presence of His Holy Spirit, but also the gift of identity. He has made us sons and daughters of the living God. And He has defined our identity in some truly wonderful ways because because He has made you and me something new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And so here in verse 9, Peter begins to describe something of this new creation, of this new identity that God has given to us. Listen to him again. He says, But you, again speaking to us as believers, you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Now, did you hear the terms of identity there? This Christian is who you are. This is how you ought to think about yourself. This is the identity that matters. So that before you're black or white, Asian or Hispanic, before you're a Republican or a Democrat, liberal or conservative, before you're an American, Canadian, Mexican, Chinese, above and beyond anything else, we are a people who belong to God. This is your first and foremost identity in a world that is rather confused about such things. This is how we must see ourselves. This, this is how we must live as a people who belong to God. So look what Peter says about us here. First he says, in in granting us our God-given identity, he says, you are a chosen race. That word chosen, of course, speaks of His sovereign mercy, of His unmerited grace to us. Jesus said, you did not choose Me, but I chose you. John 15, 16. That was His gift. He then goes on to say, I chose you out of this world to belong to Me. Verse 19 of that same passage. You are chosen. But then this word race. It's the word genos or genus, we would tend to say, because behind it are words like genetic or genealogy. But it's a word that means a people who share a common ancestry. Now, race today is something that tends to be quite divisive, as you've noticed. We live in a word, a world divided along racial lines, often with hostility one toward the other. But when Christ chose us out of the world to belong to Him, He did, well, he did an amazing thing for us. He brought an end to those old hateful distinctions that once divided us, and He united us together, as Peter says here, as one new race in Him. Colossians 3, 10 and 11 says the same thing. He says, put on the new self. That is, consciously take the identity that Christ has given you. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its Creator. Here, there's neither Greek nor Jew. Circumcised or uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Now, can you imagine if the world could ever get hold of that? Could you imagine if the church could actually get hold of this in the way it thinks and the way it lives to understand that the the coming of Christ reorients us to such a way that where we came from is no longer what matters most, but who we belong to. And that we belong to Him in a way that makes us, well, here's the word He uses, a new race. Brother, sister, that's your identity. We no longer think of ourselves first and foremost as, well, I'm black, I'm white, I'm this, I'm that, I'm brown. No, I am a blood-bought person who belongs to Christ. It doesn't mean those other things culturally aren't significant. It means they're not primary. Second, he says you are a royal priesthood. Literally, you're a king's priest. Every one of us, by the way, it means. All these yous in this passage are plural. They mean y'all. As I've often told you, you've got to be a southerner to speak the Scriptures clearly. <laughs> because he here means every one of us who belongs to Christ are part of Christ's priesthood. It's a fulfillment of Exodus 
Uh, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's our calling. We're to be priests. Now, what is it priests do? Well, priests represent God to others. Priests bring God's presence near to others. In the Old Testament, that was a special class who had a special task of making God's presence known to the nation. But in the New Testament, there is no special class of priest. That's why I don't wear a special collar or something like that. There is no special class of priests because we are all priests in this particular sense. We all go out into a godless world to make God's presence known through our words and actions that point to Christ. Christian, this is your identity. You ought to get up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I am a priest called to represent Christ today to whomever I meet. Third, he says you are a holy nation, meaning we are a new kind of nation set apart for God. Uh, ever since the Tower of Babel, we've, we've been divided into nations and cultures, languages and ethnicities. You know, you guys stay over there and we'll stay over here. We'll put a border between us and we'll defend it and we'll make sure we keep each other out. Now, that's not a political statement. Uh, you know, in a fallen world, uh, borders have a necessity. Um, that's just how nations operate in a secular world. But, you know, nation against nation, brother against brother. But again, speaking of us who are in Christ, he says God has done a new thing. By bringing us together in Christ, He has established a new and holy nation on this earth. Uh, Dan Doriani in his commentary says, This new nation is one without borders, one determined by neither race nor nationality. Believers are no longer part of the nations because we are God's people. We are God's nation. And so a new nation, one that doesn't have a seat at the United Nations... Because it's not political. It, it doesn't have physical borders. It doesn't have an earthly king or congress because it gives its lo loyalty ultimately to the king of kings. This kingdom cannot be contained within the borders of any nation on earth because its loyalties transcend every nation on earth. And its citizens are known not by the passport they carry in their pocket, but by their new hearts and the holiness of our lives. Notice he says a holy nation. You remember what holy means, don't you? It means set apart. Set apart from sin. Set apart from the world. Set apart for God. And so the people of this nation are those whose lives consciously belong to God through faith in Christ so that with everything in them, they're striving to live for God in the here and now, no matter what earthly nation they inhabit. Again, Christian, this is your identity. And this is the one that matters. This is the one that matters even more than your American nationality. This reality means, for instance, that, that, that in truth, I share more in common with a black woman in rural Africa who knows and follows Jesus than I do with a white middle class guy who's a Cardinals fan living down the street apart from Christ. Because at the very core of my being, this is the thing that defines me. So fourth, he says that we are a people of His own possession. We are a people who belong to Him and know it. 
Malachi 3.17, uh, the prophet, prophesying of this coming of us into the kingdom, he says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Now think of that. Think of that. God is saving a people from all over this world to be His very own, a treasured possession purchased out of this world to be a new kingdom of priests, a holy nation belonging to Him and representing Him in this world. Uh, we see that great vision of Revelation 7, 9, and 10 where John at the end of all things looks and sees a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from every tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne of the Lamb clothed in white, palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's who we are. That's why we're here. That's what we're here to do. In fact, look at the end of verse 9 here. After telling us all these things, and we are His possession, He says, Why are you His possession? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You ever wonder what your life here is for? Here it is. It is to join together with other believers from all around this redeemed world to proclaim to the lost world just how good and wonderful and full of grace He is. That's what excellencies means. Uh, It's that which is all of that which is good and worthy and wonderful in God. All that is truly magnificent about Him. All of His mercies and grace, His salvation, His attributes, His beauty, His truth, His justice. His mighty works. This we proclaim. Why? Because He's called us out of darkness. All that darkness that covers this sad world like a death shroud. He's called us out of it. Brought us into His marvelous, joyful, magnificent light. And He says, this is what you're to show. Didn't you know that's what you're here for? To shine His light? To make His glories seen? To declare His praises so that they can see Him? Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works, which I'm working in you, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Any of you young people here this morning looking for a purpose in life? Looking to figure out what it is you're here for and what it is you ought to be doing, well, let me just suggest this is it. To make His glories known. Whether whether you end up being a businessman, an astronaut, a a construction worker, a mother, um, a a, a father, whatever calling you have in your vocation, this is at the core of it. Uh, Whether you become a missionary or an astronaut or whatever it is you're called to, it is to make His glories known. And by the way, not just the young people, This is His calling for all of us. This is why we're here. This is who we are, church. And because that's who we are, we need to know that this is what will put us out of step with the world around us. And so the second thing we see in this passage then is, as Christians, we must simply accept the fact that loyalty to Christ will make us aliens and strangers in this world. It's verse 11. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Beloved, he says. And notice that. These are not instructions for slaves. These are exhortations for those who are loved. Again, as a Christian, you've got to know who you are. And who you are is someone deeply and passionately loved by God. He didn't, he didn't just save you out of this world to chain you to a bunch of rules. He saved you to free you that you might live in the joy of His presence. And so Peter's going to give two strong exhortations in verse 11 and 12. Most of our English translations don't, don't, don't really bring the strength of these, of these exhortations across uh, because he's telling us this is what we are to be as God's, this is what we're to do as God's beloved people. First, he's going to tell us in verse 11 that we must stay away from those self-centered sins of the flesh that wage war against our souls. And then second, he's going to tell us that we must then strive after the God-centered life that reveals His goodness and beauty to those around us. So we're going to come back to those. But first, he reminds us how our loyalty to him will separate us from them. Notice it again, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, um, uh, strangers and aliens, to abstain from these passions of the flesh. Now these words are jarring. They remind us that we... We don't fit in with a God-denying world. Again, Doriani says, when Peter calls uh, disciples aliens and strangers, he means that we are never able to be fully at home in this world. Strangers have no permanent residence. Aliens rarely hold positions of power and privilege. If at the very core of our being we are committed to knowing and living for Christ in all things, and at the core of their being they have no room for Christ and in fact are denying Christ's Lordship, well, we're going to seem really strange to them. And these two words he uses picture that strangers. He says we are aliens and strangers. Again, I like that translation a little better. And maybe you remember this is how Abraham saw himself. In Genesis 23.4, he says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Same words, alien and stranger among you. So what do these words mean? Well, sojourner means um, someone who is in fact an alien, a stranger. That is, someone who does not quite belong here. This is not their place. Someone who, in fact, is living in a place that is not their home, not their place of origin, and not their, not their permanent place to live. They're, they're just simply out of place. Again, Doriani says it well. He says, we often feel ill at ease in our own culture today. We walk into a conversation and read a piece of news, and we find ourselves amazed at what we've read, what we've heard. We watch a popular movie or television show, and to our surprise, it suddenly turns sordid or debauched. And we begin to wonder, who thought people would enjoy this? But they do enjoy it. You ever feel out of place in this world? Well, maybe that's God's signal to you that this is not your true home. That you really do belong somewhere else. That Jesus has indeed gone to prepare a place for you, as John 14 says, and this ain't it. And so for now, you're living here in this place and you're, you're seeking to, to, to shine for God here in this place, but you, you don't quite fit in and 
you can't quite make yourself at home. The second word is like it. The word exile means, again, a temporary resident. We could even say a refugee. Uh, we see it in Hebrews 13, for instance, where using pretty much the same words, he goes on to say, these exiles and strangers, they have no lasting city, but they're seeking the city that is yet to come. You're here for now by His will. You're determined while you're here to live as a good neighbor, someone who demonstrates love to the people around you. You want to be involved for the good of your city. But you can never think of this as your final home because, well, frankly, it's not. You've got a better place. Being prepared that is coming. So Peter says to his readers and us, don't try to settle down here. Don't try to think this is the final place. You, you have to think of yourself in different terms. This is what it means to belong to Christ because if we do belong to Him, then we can't really belong to a world that's in rebellion against Him. And in fact, the more it becomes clear that we belong to Him and are becoming made like Him, the more alien and strange we will seem to them. And that's, that's where the hostility comes in because quite naturally, people don't like those who don't fit in. By the way, didn't Jesus warn us about that? We're going to the Gospel of John. Uh, John 15, verse 18 and 19. He said, if the world hates you, and it does, he means, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Church, that's what we're beginning to experience more and more today. And so if our first loyalty is to Christ and His kingdom, in a world that refuses to bow to Him or acknowledge His kingdom, we will seem strange. But how could we not? And we will continue to seem stranger and stranger the more we hold fast to Christ. And listen, we've just got to own that. Not fear it, not resent it. Just own it. Because, here's the interesting thing, that is, in fact, the very thing that God will use in our lives to bear witness to them. You know, this wrong-headed idea that we can just become very much like them. This was, this was wrong in liberalism. It's wrong in, in, in modern uh, evangelicalism. You know, if we can just show them how much we're like them, they'll really like us. No, we can just blend in and show them how much we're like them. They'll see us as absolutely irrelevant and unneeded. Why do I need what you've got? You're no different than me. You just go to church. Well, that's kind of boring. I don't want to go there as opposed to seeing that there is indeed a difference. And so, third thing here, out of loyalty to Christ, then we must live lives that reflect the beauty and the purity of Christ. Amen. Verse 11 and 12, again, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to do what? To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, beautiful it means, so that when they speak against you, as they will, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So because of who we are in Christ, because of our identity in Him, because of our calling to live for Him, Peter exhorts us here to do two things. First, he tells us that we must refuse to give in to those desires for sin that still live in us, that is, in our flesh. Again, verse 11, 
abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You ought to like underline that one and review it a few times this week and think about what it means. Abstain, he says. That word means to have nothing to do with. Get away from it. It's this idea of putting distance between yourself and that thing. Run! It's how Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. Be like the recovering alcoholic who when offered a drink by a friend refuses and says, no sir, I will not do that. Friend, listen, there are just things that you and I as believers cannot allow to have any place in our lives whatsoever. Well, things like what? Well, here he calls them the passions of the flesh or the, the lusts of the flesh. Uh, one translator called it the desires of the carnal nature. It's those sinful desires that root very naturally in this flesh, that, that unredeemed part of your earthly existence. And here's what makes this particularly hard today. We live in a day where, where people assume that any desire in here that feels natural to them must in fact be good. If it feels right to me, it must be right for me. Who are you to say otherwise? That is the mantra of our age. You know, follow your heart. And so people Believe, even some who claim to be Christian believe that any inner impulse I feel strongly enough must be right and therefore must not be denied. And because to deny that inner feeling would be inauthentic and above all I want to be authentic. And so instead of being denied, it must be embraced and celebrated as a part of my identity. But here's what that misses, tragically and critically so. We live in a fallen world. Not only that, but you live with a fallen body. And that body, that flesh, has within it desires and impulses that have been disordered by sin, that have been turned on their head, that have been bent and twisted away from the beauty of God's wonderful creation to something ugly and self-destructive. That there is a part of you, as long as you live in this world, that is what Scripture calls the flesh. And that part of you is disoriented against God, set against God, and by the way, set against your good. That's why there are things within us that can feel so very natural, uh, like a sexual desire for someone other than my spouse, like a desire for pornography, like a homosexual desire, or desires for revenge, for hatred, for animosity, pride, selfishness. All of these can feel quite natural. And so if all I do is look down inside and listen to that little inner voice, well, I'll justify just about anything I feel in there. I'll begin to indulge that thing that I feel. And as I do that, I will sin. That's why the Bible never calls you to follow your heart, but to repent and follow Christ. It never says look inside yourself to find your truth. It says, look up to God and receive His truth. Amen. You see, dear one, that's what you need. In fact, Jesus said it so plainly, didn't He? Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone comes after Me, what must he do? Deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow Me. Not indulge himself. Take up his pleasures daily and follow his heart. Deny himself. Take up the cross. Follow me. 
And so Peter here urges us to run from these things. Why? Well, for the sake of our own souls. Not just the keeping of a law, but for the sake of our own souls. He says, have nothing to do with them. In fact, we must, as Paul will put it, kill them. Colossians 3, 5 and 6, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, using exactly the same word, says abstain, have nothing to do with sexual immorality. And so Peter says, you've got to refuse these things any place in your life whatsoever. Why? Verse 11. Because they wage war against your soul. Listen. Because they're trying to kill you. Listen to me. Especially you who are young, you need to understand this. But really all of us. Understand every impulse to sin that rises within you is a rebel soldier seeking to kill you. An assassin bent on your destruction. Oh, it may come to you with a smiling face like a friend offering temptation and pleasure. Oh, look at the gift I have brought you. But it's got a knife hidden behind its back. It's got poison hidden underneath its lips just waiting for a chance to sink its fangs into your soul. You've seen those old vampire movies where the vampire comes, male or female, and they're so seductive, so suave and debonair. They look so great. They seem to to, to provide some exciting life that could not be had any other way only to draw near and to put the fangs into the neck and to to begin to, 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 to draw out the very life's blood. We have to understand that there is no indulgence in sin that does not eventually bring bitter consequences. That's why Puritan John Owen said it so clearly, you better be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Drive a stake through its heart. Or Paul, Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Uh, Don't give it an inch. Don't provide it any rooms within the furniture of your life, but beat it to death and kick it out the front door. Again, why? Owen once more says, because sin, once it's let in, breaks the bones of the soul. It makes a man weak and sick and ready to die. So Peter is calling us to wake up to the danger we're in Every time those sins call our names, that we are to treat them like the vile enemies they are, we are to refuse them and run to Christ. Romans 8.13, For for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, here's the hope, here's the help, you put to death the deeds of the body that is running to the cross of Christ where sin dies, being raised with Him so that we have life, if you do that, He says, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. See, here's the really wonderful news. We're not called to take this on by ourselves. We're called to run to Christ who saves us from these things. This is what He brings to our lives. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, this grace that comes from Jesus, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. 
have nothing to do with these things. Fight this fight day in and day out. Abstain from those things that are warring against your soul. And and instead, number two, he says, abstain from those things and keep after something else. We must keep living in a way that demonstrates the beauty and the power of this new life in Christ. Verse 12, look at it. Here's the, that was the negative, here's the positive. Keep on keeping on. It's continuous. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, beautiful, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will, they will see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word honorable, excellent, kalos in Greek, uh, its most simple meaning is good or beautiful. So, so keep your behavior, your, your manner of life, your conduct day after day in the beauty zone of the Christ-like life. Keep it focused on, on living out the beautiful reality of God's truth as, it, as His grace works its way through you. Does it make sense to you to talk about the beauty of a genuinely holy life? You see, that's what's in view here. Again, He's not calling you to just follow rules. He's calling you to that which is beautiful in Christ. Think about it. This is what drew people to Christ. People didn't follow after Christ and run to Christ and flock to Christ because He was a good rule keeper. There was a beauty about His life. It was the beauty of a life completely given over to God. It was the life that we're promised in the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, we read, read last week, the fruit of the Spirit, that sweet reality that comes from the indwelling Spirit of Jesus is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So, so not a hint selfishness or abrasiveness. Yes, Jesus in His prophetic ministry said some really hard things to hypocrites and sometimes that needs to be done. But even then, in doing that, they knew there was something different about Him. They, they couldn't deny the purity of His life that, that no man ever lived like Him. And that's what drew them to Him. And it will also with us. See, we're not Jesus. But we are following Jesus if we're His. Again, look what Peter says. Keep your conduct, your way of life among the the Gentiles, that is the pagans, filled with the beauty of Christ. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, there's a contradiction between what they say and what the reality is before their eyes. They'll see your good deeds. They'll glorify God on the day of visitation. So so yeah, they're going to speak against you. You can't stop that. They're going to slander you. So what? They slandered Him. They slandered the early church. Did you know that the biggest problem with the early church was that they just didn't fit in and it bugged people to death? Karen Jobes in her commentary says, first century Greco-Roman society marginalized Christians simply because they were known to be different. The Roman writer Suetonius considered Christianity to be a mischievous superstition. Tacitus simply uh, similarly described Christians as a dangerous superstition and Christians as a race detestable for their evil practices. Oh, what kind of practices? Well, first of all, Christians were regularly accused of being cannibals, right? Because they got together in a room and ate the body and blood of some guy. They were accused of incest. Why on earth? Because husbands and wives would refer to one another as brothers and sisters. 
They were slandered as haters of mankind. Why? Because they wouldn't join in the pagan festivals and the pagan sacrifices to the God which every Roman knew were needed to keep the peace in the universe. And yet even as they slandered them and they slandered Him, they could see that there was a difference. I just look down further on Peter's page here, verse 16. He says, live as people who are free. Right? Free from, from, from all this foolishness that wages war against your soul. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Verse 19, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Maybe you bring it on yourself because you're a knucklehead. But... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He didn't revile in return. When He suffered, He didn't threaten but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You've got a shepherd, church. That's the life we're being called to, a life of forsaking sin as we turn and follow Him. Now, please notice the connection between those two. We're not just gutting it out trying to get done with sin. We're getting done with sin because we want to be with Him. The way we abstain from our lust is by turning and following Christ in the power of this new life He gives. And when we do that, and and when they see that we are doing that, never perfectly, but seeking to do so consistently, and they look and find there's no other explanation but that Christ is real and He's in us, boom! That's a big thing. That's mind-blowing. That's life-changing. And now you are a priest pointing others to Christ. Yes, it will cost you. Yes, you will be slandered. You might lose a job. Do you realize the day may come when you attend this church and someone looks on our website looking to hire you? They may not hire you because of something we said. Yes, friends may abandon you for holding fast to Christ. So be it. It might mean that you're hated without cause. Someday it could even mean persecution, imprisonment, execution. So what? I don't mean such things don't matter. I just mean they can't separate us from Christ. And to have Christ is to have everything. Oh, listen. There is not a comfort in this world or a sinful indulgence in this universe that's worth losing Christ over. And when people see that, even though they don't understand it, oh, there is power. And then one day when Christ returns and those who've seen Him in you or heard of Him through you stand on that day to receive the salvation that came because of something they caught a glimpse of through you or heard from you, listen, they're going to glorify Christ forever. Right? That's how Peter ends. Verse 12, right at the end. 
They will see your good deeds, your good works, that which Christ put in you, and they'll glorify God on the day of His visitation, on that day when He looks in. That either means when He looks at their life and examines it, or it means on the day of, the day of judgment. Kind of lean toward the day of judgment, them glorifying Him, specifically those who caught wind of Him through you. May the Lord enable us to be such a people, to live that. Where does it begin? It begins by going to the One, as Peter said in the passage I just read, who bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin by trusting what He did and live to righteousness because of the new life He gives by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, what a great calling is ours as Christians. Called out of the world to belong to You. What a great identity belongs to us. All these things we've been looking at. We've been given the great gift of a new identity in You and You're still working that out. You're still making that true of us. And So I pray for the believers in this room that You will strengthen their resolve to walk with Christ, that You will strengthen their walk to, 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 to have nothing to do with these lusts of the flesh they've been toying with. Be done with them. Cast them aside as they run and wrap both arms around Jesus for the strength to live in a way that honors Him. Father, for the one who's in this room and who's never come to You, they've been trying to be good. They've been trying to do it right. They've been been trying to, to, to put on a good face and make people think they've got it together. And Lord, they know it's all a lie. They know that they can't do this. That You would open their eyes to see that Christ died for this very reason. To take away our sins. That He rose on the third day to give us life. And that it is He, as we press close to Him day after day, confessing our sins, believing His promise, that gives us this new life of, 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 of just being done with these sins that destroy us and having this life that brings glory to You. Would You give that for Christ's sake? Amen.